Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagran Radian, on day three of the Association of the United States Army's conference and trade show here in person in Washington, D.C. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, key takeaways from three days of the U.S. Army's largest annual meeting and some deeper insights into William Shatner's trip into space aboard one of Blue Origin's New Shepard rockets. And it is my honor and pleasure to welcome as our next guest, the 40th Chief of Staff of the United States Army General Jim McConville. But before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and Raphael USA is sponsoring our coverage here at AUSA. Sir, uh, honor and pleasure wouldn't be AUSA if we weren't talking. No, it's great to be with you. What a, what a great event we're having here today. Uh, it's it's absolutely fantastic, and I want to uh, pass along my deepest sympathies uh, on the passing of General Odierno, the 38th uh, chief, uh, great American and a patriot, and he'll uh, certainly be missed. No, he's, he's, he's very special to all of us. Uh, he's an incredible leader, a special mentor to me. He gave me some really sage counsel over the years, but especially as chief of staff of the Army. Uh, and and uh, he's, he's somebody who will be missed, but somebody who will always be remembered. Um, I want to talk to you and pick up on the conversation we had last year. Uh, at uh, AUSA, we did it remotely last year, and you joined us. Uh, and you said that you viewed the window of deterrence at about two years, that the United States had to start delivering capability uh, in order to continue uh, to deter what was a rising China. Uh, we we're a year into that. How do you gauge the progress so far, and are we moving the needle fast enough? Because one of your drives has been to move that needle faster. Yeah, well, we, I think we are moving the needle. You know, we're part of the joint force uh, in the Indo-Pacific, and, and what we're providing that combatant commander is new doctrine, new organizations, new ways we're going to train, along with our modernization priorities. And I'm pleased to say that our 31 plus 4 signature systems, we're going to field 24 by uh, FY23, which is which is pretty incredible. And and what's next on the to-do list, right? I mean, deterrence is something that's constant. Obviously, threats and uh, tensions are rising. What's next on the agenda in order to continue driving capability forward? Obviously, hypersonics is an important piece of it. Talk to us about what's next on that agenda. Yeah, well, first of all, you know, hypersonics is going to be uh, fielded uh, in 2023. In fact, we've selected the, uh, the new commander of our hypersonics battery, and she has been delivered the equipment and put in the process. Um, our mid-range capability, which is going to sink ships, that's coming in, going to be delivered in 23. Our precision strike missile system is coming in in 23, and so we're very excited about that. Uh, but we have lots of other systems that, that are coming. Air and missile defense is coming together. Our integrated battle command system uh, is, is coming into place. So we're, we're very excited about where we're going in modernization. Um, let me ask a quick um, uh, intellectual question, right? Anytime capability like this is, is coming online, there's always a question of roles and missions. Is it time for another Key West, right? I mean, the Army is starting to get into fires that it's never been into in terms of range and precision. Uh, that's uh, usually been the territory of the United States Army. At the same time, we have air and missile defense uh, questions, right? I mean, the Army and the uh, Navy are the providers and Air Force the recipient, and yet there's a challenge. You don't have enough to protect your own forces, much less anybody else. Do we need to have another Key West from your standpoint? Well, I, I don't think we need another Key West. I think we're certainly, uh, as a joint force, uh, taking a look at who's going to provide uh, what capabilities. And I think our, our capabilities that we're providing are complementary. I think they're going to enable uh, the joint force to do certain things. I can see with our long-range precision fires enabling uh, air and maritime maneuvers. So I think they're very, very important for the joint force. 
Um, let me ask you uh, what is uh, an often raised uh, criticism, that the United States Army in some respects, right, there's this sense that the Navy and the Air Force, uh, that the Air Force and the Marine Corps kind of got it right, right, they took some more risk, that the uh, Army is not taking enough risk and that the Navy still has work to do on its plan. In sense, as one Army friend of mine put it, you know, that the Army may have gotten to the wrong place but for the right reasons in terms of risk avoidance. From your standpoint, what's the response uh, to, to that? Well, kind I think of when, I, when I take a look at what the risk, you know, when it talks about risk, um, I, I think we're, we're really moving on aggressively. Uh, when you think about it, when was the last time the Army had 31 plus 4 signature systems that they were going to develop over the next eight years? So I, I think we're actually moving out. I think we're getting after those type things. And you know, the Army is doing this while it's been very much employed throughout the world and, and back here in the United States. Um, let me take you to the question of the Pacific. Uh, again, uh, you know, we talk to Army analysts uh, all the time, and one of the criticisms is, uh, on the one hand, some say the Army has a good Pacific strategy, but it's not selling it and messaging it well enough, whereas others say the strategy is not as fully developed. I know that that's something that you've been focusing on as well on the Army team, and obviously General Flynn has been talking about it. And there is a little bit of confusion. You know, is it a logistics role? Is it a strike role? Is it a soft role? From your standpoint as the Chief of Staff of the Army, do you have a good strategy, and is this a messaging challenge? Yeah, I think we do have a good strategy. And in, when people ask, is it this, this, or this, I think it's all the above. Uh, we're certainly you know, going to be the ones that are going to do logistics. We've certainly got a, a, a special forces presence uh, out in the area, and we certainly want that. We're certainly going to have an air and missile defense uh, presence out in the area. We want that. We're certainly going to have a long-range precision fires presence out there. And as long as there's people living on land, there's going to be soldiers that are going to need to go out there. And you know, one of the... Um, the uh, capabilities that we actually bring, which I think is so important, is when it comes to allies and partners, working with other armies. And what we have found is when we are, have troops on the ground, uh, other armies will fight with us. If we're not there, we're not so sure how that's going to play out. As we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, what we're seeing is that when we have soldiers on the ground working side by side with our al allies and partners, we see much better results. Um, let me take you uh, to a uh, budget question. Um, this is the most ambitious, as you said, it is a generational, right? Every 40 years the Army modernizes. We had the big five, now we've got the big six programs. Um, it is going to be a flat budgetary environment. I know I feel like a broken record because at every AUSA I have to ask you the same question. What are the other, where's your trade-off headspace on this? Because ultimately on a flat budget, very, very ambitious programs. You are, it seems like, bringing them on uh, on time and schedule at this point, but that's a big challenge. What are the other trade-offs budgetarily? Well, I think when we look at the budget, we really look at the three major uh, programs that we, we expend funds on. You know, one is end strength and force structure, the other is readiness, and the other is modernization. So we are looking very closely at all those areas. We're seeing where we can uh, f get efficiencies, and, and what we're going to do is deliver, deliver the best army we can with the resources we have. Um, let me take you to the question of uh, cyber. Uh, Secretary Warmoth talked about the importance of cyber and data uh, and obviously the information networks. Uh, we just saw somebody senior in the Air Force quit, uh, the uh, software officer, saying, look, when it comes to uh, penetration of our cyber systems and the weakness of software and the hardware vulnerabilities, uh, we're asking for trouble. From your standpoint, what more needs to be done? Because it doesn't matter if you have the best army in the world, if it's actually you know, known hardware and software vulnerabilities can be exploited. 
What's the plan forward on that? Well, I mean, the, the systems we're developing, they're going, to be resi- they're going to be resilient, they're going to be reliable, and they're going to be able to operate in a contested environment. By a contested environment, we're going to have cyber attacks, and so we have to be able to do that. And, and those are in the requirements of the systems they're developing. We're also going back and looking at our enduring systems and making sure they have those, that resilience also. Um, and let me take you uh, two last questions before uh, before I get the hook. Uh, one is uh, climate. Uh, DoD has a new climate policy. I know that's something the Army is working on as well. And and that's seen as something that is almost an invisible killer in the budget. Uh, if you look at the Air Force, it has uh, Arctic installations that are vulnerable. The Navy has installations. The Army has installations all over the world. How big of a bite is this going to take? And what does an Army climate strategy look like? in part to deal with the global security challenges that are driven by climate. Well, what we're all trying to do is reduce energy needs. So if you take a look at what we've been doing on our installations, we've reduced energy requirements for the last about 14% over the last couple of years. And then we're taking a look at electrification of vehicles. Some may be hybrid, uh, some may be fully electrified depending on, on, on the requirements, but anything we can do to reduce fuel operationally on the battlefield is, is a benefit to us and we're trying to do that. And are you also looking at climate spark challenges uh, and crises worldwide as well, right? I mean, there'll be food and water shortages that are going to drive strife. Well, we've seen, we've seen uh, you know, that really across the globe right now. And, you know, when it comes to natural disasters, um, you know, we were in Haiti to help out with the earthquake. Uh, we've been all over the United States when it, when it comes uh, to additional storms or hurricanes or you name it. Uh, you know, the Army's going to be there when it's needed. And uh, last question. You were uh, G1, you were vice chief. Uh, culture change and personnel change and people are one of your top and indeed your top priority. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you stand on your ambitious drive to change Army culture, to try to get more flexible ways of service, bring us up to speed on the manpower agenda? Yeah, I think there's a, a, we got a lot of initiatives going on to bring us in the 21st century when it comes to talent management. Our, our assessment programs, by that our command assessment programs are up and running and quite frankly they're getting a lot of good uh, reviews. The battalion command assessment program is going well, the, the colonel's command assessment program is going well. It's been going so well, our sergeant majors, we're going to do an assessment program from them, we're doing it for first sergeants. Even our chaplains are going to do a assessment program. Some of the other services have taken a look at it. So that's about getting the right person in the right job at the right time. But the long term is to take a look at what I would call component fluidity, where people will move back and forth between regular Army, National Guard, and Reserve, depending on where they are in their careers. And the integrated personnel and pay system, which is the National Guard has right now, and we will field over the next year to the re- the regular Army and the Reserves are going to put us all in the same system. So I can see how that's going to change how we do business in the future. Um, speed, uh, if I can, uh, very briefly. What's the key to driving speed? You are starting to move these programs. You're moving these agenda items faster. What's the key to driving speed in the right direction? Well, I think, I think the way speed comes is you give mission-type orders rather than you know, very specified requirements. That's what's happening uh, when it comes to our acquisition programs. And we're out there saying these are the characteristics of the systems we need. And we see a lot of innovation happening. When we give uh, soldiers and commanders a room t- uh, to be innovative, we're seeing that happen. And that's what's getting us the speed we need. General McConville, always an honor and pleasure. Hopefully next time we'll have more than this brief opportunity to talk. And congratulations. Congratulations to your Boston Red Sox. Okay, thank you. Go Sox. And a word from our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, and General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. 
And joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, uh, one of the keenest observers of the Washington scene here at AUSA. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Vago, particularly on the last day of AUSA. Yes, exactly. Uh, the, the show grows sweeter the older it becomes. Uh, um, it was a terrific show. It was great to see people uh, in person after uh, all of this, uh, and especially the trifecta of shows really month to month, right? We had Navy League, AFA, and now, uh, and now this. What, what did you find most interesting over the three days of this show? You know, you spent a lot of time walking uh, the, the floor. You spent a lot of time talking to senior folks. Uh, what, what are some of the takeaways from you after after these three days well I think more so than ever and I mean it, it's not a new theme you know but these shows kind of hammer and reiterate these it's it's networks and data right you know that's what the secretary kind of kicked off with her keynote um, I think the interesting thing it's really not clear what are the industry lanes for this I think the army and I'd say this is true for the other services too they're still kind of get their arms around they know they've got uh, a lot of data. How do you get that data to move and connect with one another? They know they have a problem that it's stovepipe with legacy systems. They know they have a problem with with data rights and, you know, frankly, the cost to make changes. So, it, like a lot of things in life, I think this show just highlighted this particular transition that not just the Army, but I think the other military services and DOD, and frankly, our international partners are going through as well. Um, everybody talks about that. We have the resignation of the chief, uh, uh, the uh, Air Force's uh, cyber uh, lead, and um, he was damning in the indictment that the Chinese have effectively won. We've been talking about uh, the, the issue on uh, the program very, very extensively, uh, that the software architectures and the hardware architectures remain remarkably vulnerable. Um, do you Did you get a sense, I mean, you spent quite a lot of time talking to uh, companies big and small on the show floor. Do folks... I mean, what's their sense about whether or not leadership and the service has their arms wrapped around this problem? I think they're still, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot off Project Convergence. You know, my sense is they're still in the experimentation phase, right? They're kind of seeing and testing what works and what doesn't work. Um, and so there, there's a recognition, you know, are we driving at 80 miles an hour in this? No. Uh, but there may be some good reason for that. Um, Leadership, I think, you know, again, starting with the secretary's, uh, secretary of the Army's uh, keynote this week, you know, you're, you're setting markers here. So, but, you know, again, kind of I'm looking at this more from an industry investor standpoint. So who are the companies that are really best positioned for this? Who's really going to be the winner in this two, three, five years from now? And who are going to be the losers? And it's just too soon to tell, Vago. You know, I, I think it's still kind of an open field. Um, and it's a little bit undifferentiated, right? I mean, if everybody... Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, do you see any secret sauce in any of these or is it starting to sound like a slab of, of marketing material to you? Um, I think, unfortunately, you know, it's like transformation. I mean, I mean, JADC2 becomes a new bumper sticker that everybody claims they play some role in. But, you, you know, when you really get down to, OK, to your point, who does have the secret sauce, who really does have the most elegant software solution to this? You know, who's got the best hardware solution to this because you need antennas, processors, uh, software-defined radios to really kind of push this through. This through, I think, and I, I don't think it's going to be, you know, one big, one-size-fits-all. The technology is going to move too quickly. Uh, and the Army came out and said they are kind of happy with this capability set, annual buys that they've been using, for, for example, for radios. So, um, 
I, I, the companies are going to talk about it. You know, we're coming up on another earnings season. It's going to be it's going to be top of mind. Um, but you know, is there are there any three companies that I would point to and say, aha, you know, you're the ones that are really going to ride this wave? Too soon to tell. Um, and I'm going to uh, go, go to you uh, in terms of who were the interesting people and moved needles for you that you saw down on the show floor. Full disclosure, he's got no dog in any of these yeah, fights. Yeah. He's an independent analyst. Um, well, budgetarily, right, we, we're hearing multiple messages. You're a regular on our uh, Friday roundtable, and you're the week ahead uh, guy for us yeah. every Monday. Um, you know, the, the secretary had a very... Um, bracing budget message, right? It, it's it's going to be lean. We're still going to have to make hard choices. From your standpoint, what did you pick up? Because on the one hand, you know, you have this message that's being delivered by some on the Hill that's like, hey, we've got your back. You should be asking for more money. Whereas she is talking about being leaner and living within her, her means. I think the administration is playing a clever game. We're going to do something responsible. If you give me more money, I will have prioritized within that budget. How did you view her message and how it fits into the totality of the budget picture? I'm glad there's some realism here. You know, we, we got inflation numbers today. Um, interest rates have started to move up. I think there's just a recognition that, and, and it's not just Army being a bill payer for the other services. Um, I think there's still that pressure, you know, what, but as the Army really clearly articulated what role it's going to play in the future, I, I think they can always do a, a better job at that, but I'm, I don't think they're going to be the, the absolute bill payer for this. Having said that, you know, at the end of the day, there's going to be sustained defense budget pressure. I mean, uh, I just don't think you're going to get the 3 to 5% real growth that uh, some of the defense hawks have, have talked about and promised. You know, maybe you can do it for a year or two, but <clears throat> another recession, you know, pandemic doesn't go away. We get into an inflationary environment, you know. Social Security just Social Security recipients just get a 5.3 percent increase in their benefits. You know that money's coming from somewhere. So um, I think it's a good message. It, it kind of pivots back to where some of these technologies all fit in. Um, I do think there are a lot of things, not just the Army, but when we get into robotics, the idea that you can actually substitute capital for labor or maybe do things differently, um, that should be an overarching theme. Again, and, I, and there's, there's some interesting things here that I've seen in the show that kind of play to that. And speaking of those interesting things and how they uh, play to that, although I, I love your uh, robotization issue, right? I mean, it's it's a life-saving issue from a military perspective, uh, but also from a commercial perspective, if you can't get labor and you have a robot that can make salads, you need yeah. you, you hire one less salad maker, right? Uh, or flipping burgers or anything else. There was some interesting story about why that's like a complicated thing and yeah. it's hard for yeah. robots to do. Yeah. Uh, uh, although I'm sure technology can solve that. Turn to Japan, I suppose. Um, talk to us about some of the interesting technology you spotted on the floor. Okay, well, it, it's just amazing the number of UAS uh, platforms that are out here. You know, I, I stopped counting how many different companies have these. I did find, you know, sometimes the most interesting things you find in these shows are kind of in the edges around the display floors because those tend to be the smaller displays. So, you know, one of the things I thought was very interesting was a product that Command unveiled. It's basically a quadcopter that they can use for logistics, kind of resupply missions. It has a decent payload at range. Um, and you just, you know, this is kind of how the DOD might be doing things differently. Do you, do you need a V-22 to move a pallet of water from one ship to another? No, go, go plug in the drone and, and it will take that over back and forth at a fraction of the, certainly the unit cost 
and the sustainment cost of these bigger platforms. So I think more and more that industry can kind of come up with these ideas, the better it will be. Uh, and, and there, maybe there will be a, a, a the DOD will be able to live within these flatter budgets if they can find ways to save money doing things that they've normally done with, without a lot of attention to, to what it actually costs to do that particular mission. Uh, and if you look at it right, I mean, uh, electric vehicles make sense for bases Absolutely. and rear areas, for yeah. example. Um, what and are GM, some- GM, yeah, I'll, I'll say that. I think GM had some really interesting product, you know, just seeing how <clears throat> their presence has changed at this show. Um, you know, compared to prior AUSAs, I think they've kind of gotten a very good message here about electric vehicles, what that can do, you know, running around military bases. You're not, you're not driving, you know, 500 kilometers on these things. It's, you charge them in every night and they're, they're quite adequate. So uh, those kind of changes, I think, are, are very positive in, in where the DOD, where the Army can go, where DOD can go. And, and, doing more with, with fairly static budgets. I know that's a cliche, but I think uh, hopefully hopefully we're going to get there. Um, I, and I should point out, Steve Dumont, uh, the president of GM Defense, uh, joined us uh, for our inter, uh, as one of our guests on Monday. And full disclosure, they sponsor our technology coverage, of course. Uh, what were some under, other things that you uh, saw on the floor? Uh, because uh, you know it's just such a vast assortment, and it's hard to sort through the wheat and the chaff. But there were a couple of other ones that stood out for you. Well, the, the, the 155 uh, mobile guns that, you know, <clears throat> very prominent Bofors gun that, uh, that BAE Systems brought over for this Army requirement to basically replace the towed 155s in the Stryker Brigades. Um, it's a beast, and they actually had some Swedish military personnel here to kind of explain how Sweden's been using this. But The Bofors Archer System. The Bofors well. Archer System. And... Um, you know, Yugoslavia has has their system that they uh, they also brought over to Yuma. I guess it's called Nora. Um, I was surprised not to see the French here because they've had what the Caesar system from next Caesar from from Nexter, and um, the Israelis also have one as well too. So little little programs like that, like okay, you know, other militaries have been using these wheeled artillery systems. They're they're fast to set up and move. Um, so in an environment where I think people, they're much more cognizant of what um, the ability to have a, a fixed position targeted very quickly, um, the ability to shoot and scoot is going to become, always has been important, but probably probably seeing stuff like this just drives that home that it's good to see the, uh, the Army embrace this. Um, and one last question, right, there is this, uh, you know, on the one hand, people are calling for speed. Uh, on the other hand, the Army has been saying, look, we want to slow down a little bit and get this right, right? And slow and steady, we'll win this race. Let's test the technology. How do you see that message reconciling itself uh, and, and, and what you see senior leadership talking about? Uh, because we do have a sense that we're in a very, very important competition where we have to move faster. At the same time, you see the conservatism of the Army sometimes come up, and, and with good reason, right? I mean, some of these major programs have gone badly because they've been accused of not thinking it through as right, well. Right. What, what are your well, the thoughts think, on that? I think that? The, the one thought is, what's your adversary doing? If, if China's the pacing threat, Russia, you know, what are their deployment cycles? You know, why are they able to get stuff out so much faster? You know, are they doing iterative kind of back to the Army capability set? You know, you're, you're never going to get technology right. You know, at some point you just have to buy it maybe in smaller bite size increments, recognize you may have some logistics and support issues with that. But if, if you buy stuff 
um, you know, the technology is, it's, you're never going to get it right by saying, we're going to figure this all out and this is going to be the way that we're going to do it. And I heard, you know, some of the Army presentations, for example, on the, um, the new, uh, the optionally manned fighting vehicle, I think there's a recognition that, yeah, this has to be iterative. Um, the new Army network strategy, you know, no one knows what the network's going to look like in 2030. So keep keep going at it incrementally. Um, but I I did not hear the message that let's hold back and, until we figure everything out. I mean, I think I, what I heard was a more of an iterative, keep kind of pushing this. And I think back to this push for open architectures, if you really can do this kind of plug and play stuff, that's also going to allow um, more alacrity in what gets fielded and what, frankly, can get divested. Byron, thanks so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure, and uh, hopefully you can join us on Friday's talk as well. Thanks so very much. Thanks a lot, Vog. Always a pleasure. And a word from our sponsors. L3 Harris is sponsoring our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control, and of course, Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. And joining us now is our very own Laura J. Winter, who is the host of the Downlink podcast that we are going to be uh, launching shortly, and she can fill us in on that. Uh, here to talk about William Shatner's trip into space, uh, the 90-year-old best known for his uh, role as uh, James Tiberius Kirk, Captain James Tiberius Kirk of the USS Enterprise uh, Starship between 1966 and 1969. Uh, the original series captured everyone's imagination. Uh, this uh, vibrant, funny, uh, talented uh, Canadian-American went into space aboard uh, one of Blue Origin's uh, New Shepard rockets. And uh, Laura, thanks very much for joining us to uh, discuss this historic event. Oh, it's great to be here, Vago. Uh, an absolute pleasure having you on. And uh, so for all of us who were trapped at AUSA, talk to us a little bit about uh, the event uh, before we get into a little bit of a deeper take on, on what it all really means. Well, the event was great in the sense that it went off without a hitch. It was beautiful um, and it was incredible to watch um, another rocket, another Blue Origin rocket. And mind you, this is the second time and that does make Blue Origin the first company to send up two all civilian crews um, up at least to the edge of space. I mean, they did pass the, the Carmen line, which is uh, 100 kilometers um, up, which is the internationally recognized edge of space, but it was just suborbital space, which is a little different than like, let's say where the International Space Station is. But that aside, um, the rocket went up, they, they, you know, got up to the top, they got into weightlessness, they were there for about four minutes or so. And then uh, gravity does what gravity does, which is pull things back down to the ground. And um, there was a perfect landing by the um, actual booster rocket. And then the capsule came down. And what was really interesting um, for me this time, because I've been you know, watching these things for, for some time, is that this is a land landing. And usually landings of capsules are over water. And you know, when you're coming out of space, it's you're you're dropping really, really fast. And it's not like, you know, like a skydiver where you're in control of your parachutes and you're just a single person, you're coming down in an actual metal can. Um, the drogue chutes opened, there are three of them, and just before it reaches the ground, I'm not sure how many feet it is, 
there's just a little bit of a rocket underneath to soften the impact that lights up for like a half second. And instead of going down at 13 miles an hour at that point, they actually set down at just one mile an hour. So it's quite a soft landing. Indeed, and a little bit of a page taken out of uh, obviously uh, the Soviet and now the Russian uh, space system where you end up landing in Kazakhstan, ideally, uh, although the, the spacecraft has landed in other places across the vastness of Russia. Um, William Shatner made uh, history uh, in this flight as being the oldest uh, human in space, uh, which is uh, which is terrific. And also three other people uh, joined him uh, as well. I think uh, software uh, executive um, uh, Glenn uh, DeVries, uh, Audrey uh, Powers, uh, I think also uh, went up, who's with Blue Origin. And of course, uh, Chris uh, Bosch. Boshusen, and I, I hope I'm getting that right, co-founder of uh, Planet Labs, uh, the satellite company. Uh, what are some of the deeper uh, insights into this, right? I mean, a lot of people are wowed that, you know, Captain Kirk made it into space and everybody knows that Jeff Bezos is uh, a big original series uh, fan. I don't understand how you would be a fan of any other part of the franchise, but alas, I suppose people are. I'm just kidding. I can oh, get that. I, am. I know that <laughs> there are Picard people. You and I have had this conversation. There are Picard people and Kirk people. Uh, but what are some of the, the deeper takeaways uh, from this flight? Well, what's really interesting is that you just went through the um, passenger manifest. And on that passenger manifest, you just mentioned Audrey Powers. Now, Audrey Powers is interesting in and of herself because she oversees all of New Shepard flight operations. And just keep that in mind. That basically means that she oversees all the flight safety as well as the actual operations, that things go from here to there, things go up, things come down, but that they come down safely with everything intact. You know, nobody hurt, everyone goes home happy after having a glass of champagne. But before this, she was actually the vice president of legal and compliance, and she was the deputy general counsel as well. Now, she is an engineer, and she spent just under a decade with NASA as a flight controller. But at Blue Origin, she started off in the legal department, and this is where it gets interesting, because it was 13 days ago that Alexandra Abrams who had been the head of employee communications and 20 of her former um, colleagues, some of whom actually still work at Blue Origin, penned a, an essay that ended up on a Substack newsletter called Lioness. And they alleged that there was something wrong with the rockets, that they couldn't guarantee that it was safe. And that was the reason why they were putting this this essay out there was to alert everybody that the rockets um, and the rocket engines very specifically weren't safe. Now, today's launch used a very particular kind of engine um, for the New Shepard launch system, and they used the BE-3. They're using the BE-3 because the BE-4 isn't ready, although I'm not really sure they use the BE-4 for a New Shepard as opposed to a New Glenn, but I digress. The thing is, is that she went up there with William Shatner, in essence, to prove visually that she believes in the flight, the, the, the launch system, as well as the rockets. And then this is where it gets just a wee bit deeper, where we get into the money of it. Because the thing is, these rocket engines, Blue Origins rocket engines, are now behind schedule and being delivered to United Launch Alliance. Why does that matter? 
because United Launch Alliance has a contract with U.S. Space Force slash Air Force under the National Security Space Launch Program. And they split this contract that is worth really probably up to a billion dollars altogether because it's, it's for up to 34 launches that are supposed to take place over the next five years. And they split it with SpaceX, but ULA gets 60% of the launches and SpaceX gets 40. When ULA launches, they're gonna use the Vulcan rocket. The Vulcan rocket uses Blue Origin BE-4 engines. And to have a question that the engines may not really be up to snuff, that they may be unsafe, has been going through some people's minds. And what today's launch basically visually shows is that the people who work at Blue Origin now, the people who are in charge of safety, the people who are in charge of missions are are not just putting their money where their mouth is, they're putting their own person where their mouth is by taking a ride up and coming back to earth safely. And uh, very briefly, right, I mean, obviously, um, this has implications, right, as you said, in terms of the competition. What have we heard from the government uh, about the safety of the BE-4 engine? Because obviously, that has a big impact on our ability to send uh, rockets uh, into space and to execute that big sort of omnibus rocket contract. Well, for the government, we really haven't heard anything, because at the moment, the actual rocket engine hasn't been delivered to the United Launch Alliance. So ULA is actually waiting. And in fact, it's so late, it's two years late. It's so late that uh, when Frank Kendall uh, assumed his, his position as the head of the Air Force, he actually brought in the executives from both Blue Origin and ULA and basically said, where is my rocket? I mean, when is this going to actually be delivered? And ULA doesn't really have much to say, except we're waiting on Blue Origin. Blue Origin's behind. And so there haven't been any tests done with the new BE-4 engine with the Vulcan configuration because the rocket hasn't been delivered. So no one can actually say either way, is it safe or is it not? It needs to be tested. And this is the kind of unique insight you hope to deliver every week on the Downlink podcast. Give us an update, Laura. When are you uh, starting? When's episode zero? And when are we getting into the regular battle rhythm? Episode zero is coming out this Friday and the regular battle rhythm will follow every Friday afterward. And for those of you who are interested in space defense and the space business, uh, tune in. It's going to get interesting. Great, Laura. Thanks so very much. Really appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to the podcast. Ah, I am too. Thank you so much, Vago, for having me on today. And to William Shatner, may you live long and prosper. Sorry, I had to say that. Thanks very much, everybody, for joining us.